Well, I was reading uh, about uh, 12 below this morning, so it was kind of chilly. I thought uh, perhaps a few folks might be discouraged from coming out with the wind chill the way it was, but we're sure glad to see all of you. So uh, great, great to have you here today. We in Philippians 4 again, the book of Philippians in chapter 4. been working our way through the book of Philippians uh, for a number of, uh, actually since about last, uh, last June, I think, we began in the book of Philippians. Uh, but we will uh, be rolling along here, winding up the book here uh, just another week or so. So, uh, but Philippians chapter 4. It's a gentleman named William McKay, in Scotland, born in the year 1839. When he was 17, he left for college. His mother was a very godly Christian woman. She didn't want him to go. She was afraid he was going to be heading down a path of destruction. But she turned him over to the Lord. She let him go on his way. And before his departure, she gave him a Bible to take with him. And in the flyleaf of the Bible, she wrote his name and her name and a Bible verse. Well, the young man left for college, he went on to a university medical school, became a doctor. He began traveling with the wrong crowd. And one day in a, in a drunken spree, he, he pawned the Bible that his mother had given him uh, to get money to buy more liquor. He wandered very far away from what he had been taught at home, and yet at the same time, uh, the young Scotsman went on to become a very successful doctor, rising to the head of the largest hospital in Edinburgh. Forsaking his upbringing, he became, for a time, a committed infidel, meaning he didn't believe anything, was even elected the president of a society of atheists in his city. But God still had a plan for William McKay. One day, an accident victim came into his hospital. He was under Dr. McKay's care. The patient, learning he only had a few hours to, to live because of the injuries from his accident, he asked Dr. McKay, will you please send for my landlady and ask her to send me the book? The doctor agreed. Within a few hours, the landlady arrived with the book. It was the dying patient's Bible. Within just a, just a short amount of time, just a day or so, the patient died. Dr. McKay was kind of curious as to what kind of book the patient wanted. And so he asked the nurse who was there, he said, what about that, that book he asked for in his dying hours? There? What, what is it, was it his, his bank book or his date book? The nurse said, no, it was neither of those. It's still under his pillow. Why don't you go look? The doctor reached under the, under the pillow, felt a book, pulled it out. When he opened it, his eyes fell immediately on the front flyleaf. To his amazement and shock, it was the very Bible that he had received from his mother that he had pawned years before. He saw his name, his mother's name, and the Bible verse that she inscribed. He was so overwhelmed, he slipped the Bible under his coat, he rushed back to his private office, and it was there in that office that the doctor, who had become a wicked infidel and an atheist, he fell to his knees and prayed that God would have mercy on him and save him. He asked God to forgive him for his sinful life, and as he prayed, he, he remembered a verse that his mother had taught him when he was a kid. John 3.16, that most of you know. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Dr. McKay immediately contacted his mother to tell her of his salvation and how God had used the Bible that she gave him to dramatically answer her prayers. Well, in due time, Dr. McKay's life uh, proved that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If a man, any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And by the grace of God, William McKay, a world-renowned doctor, went on to become a pastor and author and songwriter. In fact, it was from his pen that we, you will recognize, some of you uh, who've been in church a long time will certainly recognize this old song as soon as I begin to read the words. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All from a mom who gave her son a Bible that he had discarded, but in the providence of God, it showed up right in his hand again. We're nearing the end of our study of the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 4 this morning, as I said a moment ago, and our prayer as we near the end of our study of this wonderful letter by the Apostle Paul is that God will revive us and stir us and fill us with His joy and His peace and His strength as we walk with Him day by day. We want to read this morning from Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. And we're going to go to verse 19, or probably not, actually up to verse 20, and then we will uh, develop some of our, some more of our thoughts continuing from last Sunday. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the, in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We've been meditating on this topic of contentment. What does contentment look like in our lives? What are the marks of contentment? 
We mentioned last week some folks say that they will be content when their earning power equals their yearning power. In other words, when they make enough money to get whatever they want. But we know that that isn't true because we're never quite satisfied. Solomon wrote 3,000 years ago in the, book of, in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, he who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver. He who loves abundance will never be satisfied with his increase. All of the labor of a man is for his mouth, meaning to have something to eat, yet the soul is not satisfied. That comes from Ecclesiastes 5 and another verse in chapter 6. Contentment never comes from making more money or acquiring more stuff. The marks of true contentment we saw last week come, come first of all from being satisfied with God's providence. Providence, as we defined you last week, that is God taking all of the day-to-day happenings of our lives, weaving them together for our eternal good and His eternal glory. He is fulfilling His purposes for us and for this world. God's providence is just as supernatural as God's miracles because God's doing it, but God is taking all of the normal day-to-day events of our lives And he's weaving them together to fulfill his purposes in us. As I shared with you last week, the most well-known verse for God's providence, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. The great, great passage of Scripture, as Paul says, not that everything is good that happens to us, but all things work together for good to, to those who love God. That's a verse of God's providence. God is taking all these things and he's all the all the day-to-day events of our lives and he's weaving them together to fulfill his purposes in us. Another great verse I shared with you last week Proverbs 16:9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There are many scriptural examples of God's providence. We mentioned uh, the the life stories of Joseph and Esther, both, both clearly directed by God and placed in unique positions to save the Lord's people from destruction. So God is overseeing and he is directing all the circumstances of our lives, and, and great men and women of God down through history have recognized that. But we also have to understand that, of course, that God's providence is based on God's character. And I want you to understand that very clearly, because sometimes I've, I've heard people say, I just don't know why God's doing this to me. I mean, it just seems like God, I must have done something, and God must be mad at me, or you know, all the forces of the universe are against me, and all these other things people come up with that they're saying. Hey, listen, God's providence, when He's orchestrating all those details in our lives, God's providence is based on God's character, on who He is. You see, in the ancient world, the Greek and Roman gods, and I call them little little g-gods, they were nothing more than superhuman humans. Well, Roman gods were, were selfish and self-focused and manipulative and deceptive. They, they were really quite human in all of their behavior. You still see that in the superhero movies out there today. Superheroes are very human with all of our hang-ups and, and all of our motivations and ups and downs because that, that's based on the ancient concept of a god. They're, they're just glorified humans with some extra powers. And you know why that is? That's because they are all gods who have been created in the minds of human beings. 
Hold your finger here in Philippians 4 and look way back at Psalm 115. Let me show you a very fascinating verse. We may have looked at it a time or two. Some of you with brilliant memories for Bible verses will probably remember seeing it. But Psalm 115. Let me just read to you the first eight verses. There's a very, very important principle here for us. Psalm 115, the first eight verses. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. And look at verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. If you're a Bible highlighter, boy, mark verse 8. When it comes to idols and false gods and fake gods, those who make them are like them. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the gods that are created in the minds of human beings are very human-like. Because we only have the ability to create things that we can understand. Obviously, we can't build things or create things that we don't understand. And, and so whatever human beings fashion as some kind of a god, or whatever they create in their mind as a god, it's going to be very human-like, because that, that, that's all we can make. And so the psalmist says they build these idols of silver and gold, and, and all these statues, they can't talk, they can't walk, they can't move their hands, they can't do anything. And he said, people who make them are just like them. Why? Because they made them. It comes from our hands. You might be some of you ladies who do lots of cooking. You might take a dish to somebody's house and they would say, Boy, that tastes just like something you would make. Because they know you. They might see uh, you, one of you fellas driving down the road in, in, in a certain kind of pickup. And they might say, You know, that looks just like the pickup so-and-so would drive. Because they know us. And what the psalmist is driving at is, is people who create false gods create gods that they like. Create gods that are like them. Those who make them are like them. Because gods that are created in the minds of human beings are very human-like because we only have the ability to create things that we can understand. The true and living God is beyond our ability to totally understand. That's why He's God and we aren't. If we could totally comprehend everything about God, He wouldn't be worth worshiping because He would be like us. If there were, if there were no mystery, no awesomeness, no, no breathtaking glory, no astonishing power, nothing to make us fall down in humility to honor Him, then God wouldn't be God. There are three places in the Old Testament where God says, I am not a man. One's, one of them's in the book of Numbers, one of them's in the book of 1 Samuel, the other one's in, in the book of Hosea. God says, I am not a man. 
God told the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55 of Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So, so, so when I'm, I'm, I'm running this rabbit trail with you for this reason. Because when God is overseeing and directing the circumstances of our lives, He's not playing a game with us. This is not some divine cosmic chess game with human beings as the pieces on the board. God is, is motivated by his character. He's motivated by who he is. He's, he's directing the circumstances of our lives because of who he is, because of, of his personal interest in us. He is not only sovereign and omnipotent, and remember the, the difference between those two words. Uh, omnipotent means God has all power. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. Sovereign means that God has the right to do whatever he wants. But God is not only sovereign and omnipotent, he's also omniscient, meaning he knows everything. And I'll blow your mind here with this thought. He doesn't just know the past, the present, and the future. God knows all of the possibilities. And I won't take the time to prove that to you scripturally, but I can. God knows all the possibilities. But so, so when we stand before God on that day of judgment, when, when unbelievers who are going to face God in judgment, when, when, when they stand before God and say, well, well, Lord, now wait a minute, wait a minute. If so-and-so hadn't done such-and-such, then I wouldn't have done this. And God says, oh, no, 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 I, I not only know what you did, I know what you would have done. I not only know what you have done, I know what you would have done if the situation was different, because I not only know the past, the present, and the future, I also know all the possibilities. It's in Matthew 11, the answer to that question. You can look at it sometime. If you want to know, I'll give you the references after church. But that's a very important thought for us to know that God is so omniscient. His, his knowledge is so infinite that he not only knows what has happened and what is happening and what's going to happen, he also knows all the possibilities. And that's a very secure thought for we who know Christ, that when God is directing the circumstances of our lives, it's because he knows all the possibilities. He knows what could happen if this or that took place. So God is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's gracious. He's merciful. He, he is performing His righteous and holy purposes for this world and for us. And so we talked about last week, you, just, you cannot be content in this world until we have learned to be satisfied with God's providence. That's what... The Apostle Paul's talking about here, I have learned, he said in verse 11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned in whatever circumstance, whatever situation, I have learned to be content because I am satisfied with what God is doing with me in my life. If I'm satisfied with God's providential dealings in my life, then I'm also going to be satisfied with God's provision, and I'm going to be satisfied with what God is doing in my current life situation, and I'm going to be strengthened with the power of God to deal with whatever, to deal whatever and, and wherever and however He leads me. Which was the context of our passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Paul said, Paul says, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life. I can handle it. I can deal with it. I can live for God in the middle of it because I can do all these things. I can be hungry. I can suffer need or I can be full and abound. It doesn't matter. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. So, so we are satisfied with God's providence and with His provision. And we're satisfied with where God is leading us and where He's taking us in our lives. If we're really going to be content, that's where we have to start. Saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm content with what you're doing in my life right now. But today I want to show you from this passage as well, two more marks of a contented follower of Jesus. The first one is a focus on others. The second one is a giving heart. And those thoughts kind of run together in these verses. We won't look at them separately. We'll kind of look at them all together. The Apostle Paul is showing us here a focus on others and a giving heart. First, we'll just look at a couple things with his focus on others. Paul has already mentioned this a little bit earlier. And look at chapter 2. Just turn a page back to chapter 2 here in, in Philippians. And Paul says, when he's speaking of these wonderful things, he says in chapter 2, if there's any consolation in Christ any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And I'm sure I've told you, if you're, uh, yeah, I know some of you like to underline and highlight things, to mark verse 3 and 4 way back when we studied them. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That verse 4, what a, what a classic verse on, on uh, focusing on other people. Don't just be wrapped up in me and my and my stuff and what I have to do and everything else. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have, have an others focus. Paul is, is revealing that. He's talked to that. Of course, we've been studying this, this letter for months. But when he, he wrote it to the Philippians, he sat down and wrote the letter all at once. When they took it back to the Philippian church, they, I'm sure they read the whole thing all at once. It's not really that long a letter. We're just taking it apart a piece at a time. And now, now Paul comes down in this, illustrating this again back in chapter 4. When he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You Philippians know that also in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you did you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And notice verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul says, I thank you so much for your gift, folks. But he said, you have been wonderful to me over many years. But even more important, he says, than me receiving the gift from you is the gift that is going on to your account in the eyes of God. Paul was more concerned with the spiritual benefit that God would credit to the Philippian church than he was the actual gift that he had received. And that is a, that is a solid biblical principle. God blesses giving and Paul knew it and he's quite excited he says that the Philippians are going to be putting themselves in the place of God's blessing 
He said, it's not that I'm looking for the gift, and I just want you guys to give me something. He said, he said I want you to have fruit that abounds to your account. I, I want God to look down at you and say, wow, look at the gift the Philippians gave the Apostle Paul. Mark that down, angels. Those guys are getting lined up for some blessings. You say, is there more in the scripture about that? Well, of course you know there is. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25. Solomon writes, There is one who scatters, yet he increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right. I mean, he keeps it for himself, but that leads to poverty. He says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will be watered himself. The Lord Jesus said in one of his parables in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he said, Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will it be given to you. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Great thought. Think of that wonderful word picture, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You know, it wasn't too, just a week or so ago, Carol was doing some cooking in the kitchen, and, and I happened to pass by, and she said, Hey, will you pour more flour into this, uh, into this canister? I said, Sure. So I took the bag of flour, she's got a big bag of flour, fills her, fills her canister with, and I, and I poured the flour into the canister, and it got up to the top, and you've all done it. You take it, you tap it, you spin it, you tap it, you spin it, it goes down, and you pour some more in. That's, that's the word picture Jesus is giving here. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Give and it will be given unto you. He said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For with the same measure that, that you use, it will be measured back to you again. The wonderful passage is that the Apostle Paul dealt with a whole two chapters worth of giving principles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. All the, the, both those chapters are about giving to the Lord. But one of the very well-known verses in that text is in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. I'll read it to you. And you'll, some of you will recognize it. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, meaning by force. For God loves a cheerful giver. So when Paul tells them that he's thankful for the gift that they sent, but he's thrilled that God will credit that gift to their account, notice how he describes their gift in verse 18. He said, I have all in abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And look at this description, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That, that is Old Testament sacrifice language. There are almost 40 times in the Old Testament, 16 of them in Leviticus, where, it said, where the Bible says the aroma of sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. Now, it isn't the actual smell of the smoke of the burnt offering, but, but, it, but what, what was pleasing to the Lord is what that represented. It represented an offering for sin. It represented the substitutionary atonement for sin. And that, and that sacrifice imagery 
that, that, that sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, that, that word picture isn't just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. In Revelation chapter 5, that great scene of all the saints of God around the throne of God, it, it records that the prayers of believers in Jesus are like golden bowls of burning incense, symbolizing prayers rising to God like the smoke of the burning incense in the temple. Kind of an interesting thought, that, 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 as, that, that as that aroma of, God's, of, of the prayers of God's people is rising to God, it, it's something that is a blessing to God, something that is pleasing to Him. 2 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul also uses that same imagery. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And listen to this phrase, through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Through us, Paul writes, God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And then he goes on to say, you have to smile a little bit. We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Then he goes on to say that those to those who are coming to Christ, to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. But to those who are perishing, we are the smell of death. <laughs> you have to meditate on that a little bit. Why is that? Because people who are rejecting Christ, they look at us and say, oh, I don't like those people. These guys are like the smell of death. Ooh. But to those who are coming to Christ, to those who are responding to the gospel, they say, oh, I love being around those people. They're just like the smell of a spring day. It's like the smell of life. But just think about that. When you are going through your day-to-day -day life and you're working with people and you're rubbing shoulders with people and you're meeting people, are you the fragrance of Christ? Do people look at your life and say, man, that just smells like Jesus. Wow, you know what that person said and the way they are and the way they act, that just, that just reminds me of the Lord. That's what Paul says. He says, through us, God is diffusing the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Fascinating word picture. And then in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, you're, you're almost there. Just, you just turned back a page or two. Philippians, Ephesians is right in front of Philippians. I'll show you this one. <coughs> Ephesians 5. First two verses, just a, just a couple lines there. Ephesians 5, the first couple verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. There's that Old Testament sacrifice imagery again. You know what he's saying? He's saying when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice to God was like those Old Testament burnt offerings for sin. God was accepting it. Christ, he said, offered himself for us. He was a sacrifice to God just like those Old Testament sacrifices that he was fulfilling. So Paul says to these folks here in the, in the church in Philippi, he said, that gift that you gave to me, he said, it was, it was like a sacrifice to God. 
It was a sweet-smelling aroma. It was well-pleasing to the Lord. must have really cost him something. We don't know how much the Philippian church, church sent to Paul. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say. Paul doesn't indicate it. But it must have been a pretty nice gift. Because he said, I have everything. I abound. I'm full. I've gotten your gift. It's great. And he said, wow, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But look with me at the beautiful promise of verse 19. My God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And remember our Bible study principle from last week that I had had mentioned to you that, that the power of a text is in its context. The power of a text is in its context. There's a lot of verses you can just kind of pull them out and, and maybe we don't really apply them like we ought to apply them. But right here in the, in the middle of this, when Paul says, my God will supply all your need, the context here is that God is going to supply all their need because they gave sacrificially to Paul. This promise is not for those who don't give a sweet-smelling, acceptable offering to the work of the Lord. It is a promise for those who do. And note that Paul does not say that God will supply your needs out of His riches in glory, but according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You say, what's the difference? Well, there is a significant difference. A multimillionaire could come by here, and, and you could say to him, will you give me something? And he could hand you ten bucks. And you know what? He would be giving you out of his riches. But if he gave you a gift according to his riches, that'd be something totally different. Because according to is a proportion. It's a percentage, you might say. He gives you something according to what he has, in relation to what he has. It's, it's quite an incredible concept because God says, that, or Paul says, that God is going to supply the needs of the gracious-hearted giving Philippians according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So putting together our thoughts from last week and this week, we see that a contented follower of Jesus is going to be satisfied with God's providence. He's going to be focused on the spiritual well-being of others. He's going to be unselfish in his giving. He's going to be totally dependent on God to supply his needs. <clears throat> he knows that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength, and he knows that God will provide what he has to have, not his wants, but his needs. Well-known pastor Chuck Swindoll once wrote, We are most content when we're grateful for what we own, satisfied with what we make, and generous to those in need. Are we content in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world that is certainly not content. Always wanting more, 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 more. Never satisfied. Never content with what you give us. Never content with what you bring us. Never content with you and what you do with us. And Lord, I pray that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be content. As Paul said, he learned to be content. Whether times were tough or times were easy. 
whether it was really hard or whether he had all, he, all, that, all that he could possibly need. Regardless of which end of the economic spectrum he was on, he, he was content because he was trusting the providence of God. Lord, I pray that you would help us today. We are such needy people. We are weak. We are flawed. We are sinners. You are our Savior. Lord, we need you. And we need to learn to be content. Help us, Lord, to never be grumbling and griping and complaining. Help us to be satisfied with where you're taking us and where you're leading us and where you're guiding us. And Lord, for our friends and loved ones, many have been mentioned today, prayers for their families and others. Lord, we have so many friends and loved ones who need the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know him as their Savior. They know all about him, but they don't really know him in a personal way. They've never put their faith in him. They've never received the confidence of the forgiveness of their sin through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would come to Christ and that we would be uh, that fragrance of Christ that will help lead them to the truth of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for we who know you and are trying to follow you, help us, Lord, to have the fragrance of Christ in every place. May we never be known as gripers and complainers and moaning and groaning about all the situations of life. Help us, Lord, to trust your providence and be satisfied with what you're doing with us. Give us concern for others and a giving heart to the cause of Christ. Thank you, Father, for these who are here today, those who may be listening online. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak the word of God to them as well. And Father, we just ask that you would help us today to, to be what you want us to be and to be content with where you're taking us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to close with that uh, song we sang right at the end there, Be Thou My Vision, 143 in your hymn book. We're just going to sing it a cappella, 143. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, 
thy treasure thou art. I, King of heaven, my victory won, may I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Tom, will you close us in prayer, please? Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks so much for coming today. Lord willing, it won't be ten below next Sunday.